This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Less than 24 hours after the Colorado legislature adjourned Wednesday and after they'd agreed on major issues that had split the parties for years, the governor announced he might call a special session. But what did Coloradans get out of the last four months of the regular session? I'm joined today by Democratic House Speaker Chrysanta Duran and Republican Senate President Kevin Grantham to talk about the session that just wrapped. And for further perspective, I'm joined as well by my colleague Vic Vela, who covered the legislature this year. Nice to have you all on the program. And Vic, first, the governor called this the most productive session he's seen, and he's seen quite a few of them. And also said he might call a special session. Square those two things for us. Yeah. Hey, Ryan. Well, first, let's say that talk of special sessions is something that often comes up at the end of each session. But they're rare. Um, and the governor has never called for one. But Hickenlooper did tell people at a post-session party uh, not to make any vacation plans this month. Uh, Is this a serious contemplation for a special session? Who knows? But the governor is serious about two issues in particular that suffered defeats, providing more money for transportation through a sales tax increase and and a legislative package aimed at addressing health care costs. He said he would take the weekend to think about whether to call for a special session. Right. And we should know by Monday. Well, Senator Grantham, uh, president of the Colorado Senate, I wonder if the governor's announcement took you by surprise. Not at all. He's been threatening special session during every legislative interim uh, since he became governor. And to correct Vic on at least one point, he actually has called a special session uh, after the 20, uh, was it after the 2012 session. Um, he did have a special session. So he did have one back then. Um, that was around the civil unions issue. And, and I think there was another issue that he wrapped up in that. But... Um, He's been talking about this for at least the last two years as well, uh, a little bit more vigorously when it came to the hospital provider fee. And we have seen uh, some progress on that one, at least, with Senate Bill 267. And um, credit a lot of the work to some of our colleagues as I sit here with the Speaker. Um, Some of the great work by Representative Becker and Senator Sonnenberg uh, to get that accomplished and get that done, as well as the Speaker's leadership on that. And so um, plenty of things that did get done. But to answer your question, no, not surprised, because this is what happens every May. Um, if he does it, uh, that'll be the surprise. I see. And do you think if he does it that any of the outcomes uh, that were not arrived at in the regular session, particularly on transportation and health care, uh, that those might change? Well, it's tough to say. Um, you know, we're going to have to look at, uh, if he calls it really soon, uh, then there will have to be some dynamic uh, changes in the dynamics that would warrant a call for a special session so that we could actually get something done. We'll have to look at whether, uh, how much of this is actually emergencies, stuff that needs to be done in a special session, or things that can be done if we wait for the next regular session in January. So, I mean, we have some options ahead of us. We can look at some of the the different issues. And if the governor wants to talk about those things, it's great. Uh, I wish maybe he'd have been a little bit more engaged with uh, the speaker and I possibly on some of these things before the 120 days are up. But if he wants to seriously consider these things, he needs to make the case to us and to the legislature and to the people of Colorado that these things have to be done before next January. Yeah. And so, Speaker Duran, I'm wondering if you think the governor ought to have been more engaged in the session. 
Well, I think the governor was engaged during the legislative session, I think particularly when it comes to the negotiations around freeing up additional dollars for education and transportation. Um, he was involved with that. And I do think that we still have work to do. It has been the most productive legislative session that I have been, ever been part of. I'm very thankful and proud that Republicans and Democrats came around uh, key issues like educational equity. Um, we came together on the budget changes as it relates to the hospital provider fee. Um, and we also came together on construction defects reform. All three of those issues have been major challenges for previous legislatures. And I think moving forward, though, we also have to be thinking about what kind of state do we want in the next 10 years, the next 20 years, the next 30 years. When you imagine Colorado, what do you see? And how do we continue to have tough conversations, like the tough conversations that we had this legislative session, to build a state where businesses can succeed, where everyone who wants to be able to work hard has an opportunity to get access to good-paying jobs? And how do we invest in roads and bridges and organize our roads, not just to move cars, but to be focused on moving people? Um, I am so thankful for the leadership that rose to the top this legislative session, uh, but we have more work to do. And if something can change to take on those tough issues, um, it, going to a special session may be time that is well spent. But I think the question remains is for the Republicans who voted no on House Bill 1242, which was the transportation referred measure, um, how do we get them to engage in a productive conversation of what transportation is going to look like for the next generation? Yeah, I'd like to put a finer point on that question in particular about the transportation tax possibly uh, going to the ballot. That was the idea here, is to refer a measure from the legislature to the ballot and ask voters for a uh, hike in the sales tax to pay for transportation. And Vic Vela, that was defeated despite um, support from leaders uh, in both parties. Yeah, you had uh, obviously the Senate President Grantham and House Speaker Duran uh, backing that bill. Um, and uh, it was really killed by three Republicans in the Senate, in a Senate Finance Committee, uh, led by a very conservative uh, Republican, Senator Tim Neville. So this had, uh, you know, a lot of folks behind it in the House. It passed through the House. It got to the Senate. And despite Senator Grantham's uh, name behind the bill, it just did it fell apart. That's where it stopped was the was the committee in the Senate process. Right. And so th we have heard several references thus far to the hospital provider fee. This is an accounting change that in the end will have freed up a little under $2 billion for transportation versus $3.5 billion that this referred measure might have raised. Uh, Senator Grantham, what do you think happened here? Um, when I talked to the governor earlier this week, he said, I'm not sure why the legislature wouldn't just let us ask the question of voters. This wasn't passing a tax hike. It was passing a question about a tax hike. Well, certainly that's, uh, that's the point I... Um, made to my own colleagues in my caucus that I think, at least in this point, um, it's not something that we want to do every session. We don't want the taxpayers constantly have to, having to fend off uh, the a, a tax measure at the ballot at, at every single election, every single November. But if we're going to do it ever, then we should do it for something that is um, what most of us, even Republicans, would consider a a valid reason, a core governmental function like transportation infrastructure. And that's the case that I tried to make to my colleagues. 
and uh, a lot of our folks uh, don't believe that uh, uh, any tax measure is is worthwhile as long as we still have some waste, fraud, and abuse in government, and we want to continue to try to find uh, ways to reprioritize money. And I think we actually did accomplish that to some extent in 1242 with reprioritization um, and asking the people if they wanted to do a, a new tax measure um, in order to uh, silo that money specifically for bonding, for transportation. I think it was a great measure. You think that there and was accountability the opportunity there. to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there is accountability there with the new money and with existing money. And uh, I think the Speaker and I came to some terms on some, on some good policy. And uh, I, I'm not sure what uh, would take to convince some of those folks to get over the finish line on that. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things. I, there was some measure of success with the, the bonded or the certificate of participation money that's within 267 for nearly $2 billion worth of projects. So that's, let me just say, um, that's another bill, yeah. a sort of kitchen sink bill that includes some transportation sure. money and this hospital provider fee. And Senator, let me kind of pick up on that. You mentioned some of the, the folks in your own party. You know, this, again, as I mentioned, this bill was basically killed by three Republican senators. Uh, when you see, I'm very curious, when you see U.S. House Speaker Paul Ryan on TV and see how much he struggles to wrangle his own party. Uh, do you say to yourself, yeah, I know exactly how that guy feels? Who? No, just kidding. <laughs> TV, like I have time to watch TV. No. Or listen to radio. <laughs> I appreciate. You know, I, I appreciate anybody that's uh, in leadership, uh, whether it's the, the Speaker of the House in D.C. or uh, the Majority Leader or the Speaker of the House sitting right across the table from me here. Um, we all get to, to deal with our internal dynamics and wrangling those within our own parties. And uh, it's, uh, it's a chore, and it's part of the job. And uh, I, <laughs> for anybody I've ever criticized in the past, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> and let me just add to that, you know, in a time where so many people are watching what is going on in Washington, D.C., and yeah the Trump administration and a time when there is so much divisiveness and where people feel very anxious about politics and government, um, we should all be proud that in the state of Colorado that we have done things this session like we have always done, which is focusing on those issues that bind us together rather than those that divide us and that we were able to have tough conversations and work together to be able to have one of the most productive legislative sessions that many of us seen, have seen for a long time. Um, that said, we still have work to do, and we're up for the challenge and willing to talk with anybody who's willing to have conversations to figure out how we continue to move forward. You talk about issues that bind the parties together. I want to say that this accounting change, this hospital provider fee, for the longest time did not bind the parties together. In fact, it was quite the wedge. And Republicans saw this accounting change that would free up more money in the budget as as unconstitutional, flat out. Uh, President Grantham, did you think that going into this? The proposals that we saw for the last couple or three years, I would say yes. Um, One of the, the major problems that we had was some of the language within Tabor itself in Article 10 of the Constitution that require a, a base reset. And what that actually means um, functionally, uh, it's down in the weeds, but it was something that I think many of us saw as a necessity for um, even having the conversation. And 
what that translated into was a $200 million base reset. Um, I don't know how much detail you want to go into on the radio. Yeah, not, not, not a huge <laughs> amount. Uh, <because laughs> co- constitutional finance in Colorado is one of the most head-turning <laughs> things. But the, the there, is a, is there, there, was a, there was a concession in a way that Democrats had to make, I think, for you to, to support this. Certainly, and, and I certainly appreciate their ability to, to move on that and uh, our ability to move on, on some of these things as well when it comes to 200 versus 670 million. I think some of our members would have voted for it if it had been up in the $670 million range, but it got negotiated down to a $200 million base reset, and many of us were still able to support that because of the other uh, things that happened within it and what we're able to do with it with transportation, with rural schools, uh, with uh, business personal property tax. There's some other things that we're able to accomplish with this that I think were wins for our side and and wins for the other side. So I think at the, the heart of it, we were able to stay within constitutional limitations and uh, get things done for the benefit of all of Colorado. Okay, yes. and for those who, who don't follow the legislature enough to even perhaps know what a reset is, I just want to go back to the big idea here. So this accounting change, this hospital provider fee and the bill associated with it, Vic, you have called the kitchen sink yeah. bill because it not only addresses transportation, which is really what we've been focusing on right now, but about a thousand other things, right? <laughs> what, what's in the kitchen sink and and uh, again, this this was a a critical negotiation between the parties. Well, the better question is, what's not in the sink, uh, Ryan? <laughs> uh, look, there's 1.8 billion dollars for roads and transit, uh, more money for schools, a tax break for small business, and 528 million dollars for hospitals. Uh, it even touches marijuana money because uh, it raises pot sales taxes from fi- 13 to 15 percent to pay for some of the school funding. And this is where we get to that wonky phrase we asked you guys not to t- not to use earlier, the hospital provider fee uh, that hospitals pay to support medical costs for, for poor people. Uh, the bill, as you mentioned, does make an accounting change that takes the fee out from under the state's constitutional revenue limit. And Demi- Democrats argued for that change for years. Republicans opposed it. And Senator Grantham, uh, you know, we talked about this change and, and how you supported it. Uh, but it had to morph over time to, to, for it to get to the point where you could support it, right? Oh, certainly. Um, I think um, from the beginning of the session, uh, actually even from the uh, after the election last November, the, you know, the co- constant questions are, uh, where where are we at on the hospital provider fee? And uh, more than once I use the term non-starter. Uh, but the fact of the matter is we let uh, Senator Sonnenberg um, uh, have these discussions with uh, the House members and with the governor's office. And it turns out that there was some the ability for them to move as well as us. And so we found that, that uh, happy place, so to speak. And... It took a little while. It took nearly 120 days of session to find it, but we found it. I'd like to ask you, uh, Speaker Duran, um, in particular, about the money that will go to rural and safety net hospitals as a result of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them said that they faced the threat of closure if this change wasn't made. But, you know, the Denver Post reported this week that despite this fee which helps hospitals um, 
meet the costs of uncompensated care that is, in a way, helps poor people pay for health care. Despite that, um, the, the cost shift appears to still exist. That is, that uh, people with insurance are still paying really high rates and have not seen a benefit from the hospital provider fee. Shouldn't Coloradans who are insured and go to the hospital, shouldn't their bills be going down because the state is supporting rural and safety net hospitals through this fee? Mm-hmm. Well, I had the great opportunity to travel out to Hugo, Colorado, and meet with healthcare providers, doctors, and also patients at the Lincoln Community Hospital. And talking with people there and understanding how important some of these rural hospitals are, um, it is paramount because if the hospital was not there, there would be no access to healthcare for people who live in the area or people who may be driving by an I-70 and, God forbid, get into an accident. And so it is a very meaningful part of our health care system that we have access. And shouldn't, that said, other, shouldn't other Coloradans <clears throat> be benefiting from that support, though? Well, and I think you raise a very good question as it relates to um, how do we continue to look at cost drivers in health care. And this legislative session, um, in collaboration with legislators, uh, the lieutenant governor worked on a variety of bills that would address the issue of transparency and trying to dig deeper and looking at some of those cost drivers. Um, This is another area where I think we have work to do. Unfortunately, um, the bills that were brought forward on the health care front were not able to pass the Senate. But I think that in future legislative sessions, just like we saw this year where the House passed out many of these bills, um, it's a conversation worth having. And we have a foundation of access to affordable health care in the state, but doesn't mean that it's perfect. And it doesn't mean that there isn't more work to do um, to make sure that we're driving down those high costs and, and ensure that there's transparency. But is the hospital provider fee fulfilling its mission? Shouldn't it be lowering people's bills who are insured? I think that overall is absolutely providing um, a meaningful solution to some of these issues, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to evaluate it and make sure that every dollar that is utilized is is a dollar that is invested well. I want to reflect um, just a little bit on what we have called the kitchen sink bill. This is a bill, a change in an accounting uh, maneuver that frees up money for transportation and does a lot more. Um, Vic, this really uh, was negotiated in the final days of session. It, as we have said, achieves a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I wonder what you, you make of that. Well, the bill is a monster, right? It's it's 76 pages. And again, I've, we've talked about this being a kitchen sink bill because it has everything in it. But the final passage in the bill, or excuse me, the final language in the bill wasn't available to the public until just days before the legislature adjourned. And and I got to tell you, I sat in both chambers and I heard the debate and I heard listened to a lot of lawmakers say things like, I don't know what's in this bill, or even I don't like this bill, but I'm going to vote for it anyway. Uh, and this, my question is to uh, Senator Grantham and House Speaker Duran: Is it responsible to drop major pieces of legislation super late in the session uh, when there's little time for public comment and and lawmakers may be voting without understanding all the details? Well, at least for my part, I think uh, I've been one of those outspoken critics in the past on. The legislation that's dropped late in the session, uh, um, especially major pieces of legislation that have had absolutely zero vetting 
and there's been they've been held in, in the background they've been talked about with small groups and then they're dropped and expecting expected by everyone to just pass i think 267 uh, doesn't really fall into that category this is something that's been talked about for years this is something that's been uh, well vetted 267 was dropped uh, uh, not at the end of the session the the amendment uh, that was dropped had a few changes in it, but those changes were easily explained from what was originally in 267. This is, this is the number and of... And so I, the, I think a lot of this was well vetted before we ever got to the last few days of session. I'm just going to say 267 is the bill number, and uh, this is the, the kitchen sink bill that we've been talking about. So you, you think that yes. there has been an evolution of this legislation over time. And uh, briefly, uh, Speaker, what, what do you think? Was this crammed in at the end? You know, in Colorado, if a member introduces a, a piece of legislation, um, there is always a hearing on it. We're unlike some other states, and we always ha- there's always an opportunity for the public to weigh in. Um, that was the case in this particular situation, and I think the value of being able to find common ground uh, was tremendous before the end of the legislative session, and there was a lot going on in those the final week and final days, um, but it was time worth spent, and at the end of the day, uh, the people of Colorado will benefit from that. And you mentioned a lot going on in those final days, uh, Madam Speaker. And, and this is to both of you, and I'm being serious here. Do you think more work can get done in 120 days if you guys didn't spend so much time talking about resolutions? Uh, there were a ton of feel-good resolutions honoring highways and libraries and national monuments that are non-binding. And I've sat through partisan resolutions on immigration and equal pay that are really just, if you think about it, tax-funded campaign speeches from the House or Senate will. Well, do you think uh, these things take away time from actual governing? And do you think they're often the reason why so many things are left to deal with in the final hours? No, not at all. I think they're time well spent. Um, there's a variety of different issues that the people of Colorado face on a daily basis, and we work with um, you know, them to be able to listen to concerns and be able to have meaningful conversations about issues um, that matter. I think also that you know sometimes there will be ideas that will be communicated in the form of a resolution, but ultimately that can lead to legislation. I'll give you an example of that. Um, you know, we've had resolutions on equal pay in this legislative session. Um, it was great to see Republicans and Democrats come together to be able to come up with legislation that will prohibit employers from punishing employees for sharing ways, wage information um, to stop a practice that we know that is challenging for women to be able to receive equal pay for equal work. And so sometimes the work that goes into the resolutions, not only a listening um, to constituents and the people of Colorado about the issues that they care about, but sometimes it can actually lead to meaningful policy. Do you think that, uh, President Grantham, this is time well spent? Well, I think it is, um, you know, it's, it's another part of the process. Um, we get the chance, as well as the other side, whether it's the minority caucuses or the majority caucuses in both chambers, to highlight larger issues. Um, the speaker brought up that one issue, and, and we've had our own issues that we get to uh, elevate through the use of a resolution to talk about larger issues, whether it's on a national level or international level or even uh, something local here at the state or at home. Uh, it's an opportunity to highlight those things, and we do it within the process and within the 120 days. Um, and it's just part of what we do, and I think it's a, a valuable part of what we do. So I uh, hear you both saying there's going to be that stuff that's brought up. 
I hear you both saying that, that this can start as symbol and wind up as substance, and that's why you think that, uh, that these resolutions are important. I, I want to move on to another topic. Um, there's a lot of code in legislative speak. So, so far we've heard hospital provider fee, and in that you're, you're actually supposed to think about transportation and the future of rural hospitals. And another piece of code at the legislature is construction defects as a stand-in for affordable housing. So this is an issue that has um, been really in a logjam in previous sessions. The parties could not come to agreement. And the idea is that if you make it uh, harder to sue over construction defects and easier to negotiate if the construction of a building is shoddy, that developers will be more inclined to build condos. There hasn't been a lot of condo construction in Colorado. And if there's more housing on the market, then the cost of housing will go down commensurately. There was this session uh, agreement reached on this construction defects reform. And I want to go to the heart of the matter. Uh, Speaker Duran, do you think that we will start to see then changes to the market Uh, a lowering of prices, a lowering of what housing costs as a result of this? Or is that a false promise? I sure hope so. Um, You know, the issue of housing is one that is on the forefront of many Coloradans' minds. And um, for years, the idea of having construction defects reform was a very um, challenging concept. And this legislative session, we saw Republicans and Democrats come together to empower consumers um, and empower homeowners so that there is a greater threshold if they're going to engage in litigation, but also that they know what they're getting into. So there's informed consent um, when they decide to go forward with a lawsuit. Um, I think it was good policy and uh, very thankful for all the legislators who worked on that. Um, But we have to continue to think about the high cost of housing and how we're going to address it. Uh, This session, we saw meaningful investments into that issue. We also um, worked on proposals to address some of the issues that renters face. Um, Prior to legislation passing this legislative session, um, for renters across the state of Colorado, if their rent was going to increase, they only had to get a seven-day notice uh, from their landlord, which is simply not enough. And so we increase the amount of time um, that landlords have to give notice to families if their rent is going to increase. Um, We saw several proposals come forward on the housing issue, and I think that we still have work to do to um, address that as well, the high costs and also access for a lot of working families um, who are doing everything that they are supposed to, but it's still challenging for them to be able to buy their first home. And President Grantham, on this same question, you heard the speaker say she sure hopes this this has an effect on affordable housing. Can you say that you you do more than hope? And can you transmit to voters that that this will result in more affordable housing? Well, time will tell on that. And I I think I would agree that I would hope that this does. Uh, This was not the the magic bullet that I think a lot of folks within the legislature were, were looking for, were hoping for. Um, But it does move the ball. And so we're actually pleased that for the first time in five, six, seven years that we've actually been able to move the ball down the road, which prior legislators legislatures have not been able to do. So I think we take a little bit of pride in the fact that we were able to accomplish that. And the the group of legislators that was working on this, um, uh, they were a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into 
a lot of the negotiations and there was a multitude of bills and 1279 was the one that passed and it moves the ball a little bit and we're going to see how that uh, plays out and how that functions over the next year or so and if there's other supplemental in legislation that can complement that uh, in the next session we're going to continue to look at that because I don't think we got to the finish line I think we're we're moving in the right direction though. Hmm. In the last few minutes that we have, I'd like to talk about the home explosion in Weld County in Firestone, Colorado, the result of gas that leaked uh, into the home from a flow line and a nearby well. Uh, Vic, in the final, well, gosh, days, literally like two days of session, there was legislation proposed about mapping uh, wells and flow lines uh, with concern that they are awfully close to new housing developments. I, I'd like to ask each of you, uh, Speaker Duran, if you'd begin, mm-hmm. do you think the legislature needs to act in any regard uh, in reaction to the Firestone situation, I guess in, in a future session at this point? Yeah, I think we do. And we did this last legislative session. Representative Foote came forward uh, with a b- bill um, in response to the firestorm tragedy to look at flow lines and mapping and we've seen other pieces of legislation this session as well which were not um, successful to make sure also. which were not successful um, however they started a meaningful conversation um, and this is an issue that doesn't fall down on party lines or it shouldn't at least it shouldn't just be a republican versus democratic issue you know when i've had the opportunity um, to be in different areas of the state i've heard from Republican mayors who are concerned about some of the issues as it relates to oil and gas. And I think we need to continue to work together to make sure that we have good policy, um, that we empower local governments, that there is transparency um, around the development that is going on, and that we work together to address some of the concerns of Coloradans. President Grantham, we have uh, less than a minute. I'll give you the last word on this issue. Well, you know, I think it is something that we should definitely be looking very carefully at over the this interim. Any one of us, uh, Republican or Democrat, if we were living up there and we had the potential for these flow lines underneath our house or within our neighborhood, we'd want to know. We'd want to know where they were at. And we're going to look at that very carefully. We're going to see what the governor's agencies have the authority to do and what uh, we can empower them to do in the next legislative session if they need more. Uh, we want to make sure that our local governments have access to the that mapping if necessary and to the extent that it's possible. And uh, we'll make, try to make sure we can do everything we can to uh, prevent further tragedies like this. We have to put at the forefront the safety of Colorado families. And um, it has been challenging uh, throughout this process, I think, to be able to find good policy. And we have work to do. Grateful to both of you and to our own Vic Vela. So you heard there from Kevin Grant, the Republican from Canyon City, president of the Colorado Senate and Democrat, Chrisanta Duran. She is from Denver and speaker of the Colorado House. And our own Vic Vela covered the legislative session for CPR. Lawmakers also cut a last minute deal to help charter schools. We're going to talk about that and other education related bills Monday. Also next week, a look at the legislature's work on mental health. So that's coming up next week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
There is a monumental art at the Denver Botanic Gardens. It's by the late sculptor Alexander Calder. As CPR arts reporter Corey Jones learned, it wasn't easy bringing these large pieces to Colorado. No, that was a common response the Denver Botanic Gardens got when it asked places to loan their Alexander Calder sculptures. And here's why. These works are considered icons and landmarks, and when they are loaned out... It's like, you know, taking out a part of your body if you, if you take out the, the colder. That's curator Alfred Pacmon. It took him two years to put this show together. As an artist, Calder pioneered different types of sculpture. His bigger works appear in parks, public plazas, and museums around the world. Thanks to Pacmon, now you'll find some peppered among plants and pools throughout the Denver Botanic Gardens. It certainly would not have been possible to consider this show as a traveling show because the pieces are so hard to get. Pacmon used to direct France's Museum of Modern Art. Calder was an American artist, but he spent a lot of time in Paris. There, Calder had a studio, which Pacmon now oversees. He has done a huge range of sculptures and drawings, but the selection is exclusively on monumental pieces. Calder Monumental. That's the name of this show. It spans the last two decades of Calder's career before he died in 1976. During this time, he focused on making large metal sculptures. These nine pieces in the gardens came from cities like Houston, St. Louis, and Denver. Calder is one of the most important artists working in the 20th century. That's Rebecca Hart. She's the contemporary art curator at the Denver Art Museum. Hart has worked with five of Calder's monumental sculptures during her career. She says they can be very expensive and difficult to move. They also leave a big empty space that most places don't know what to do with. There are very few places in the world that you can go and see nine Calder sculptures in one hour. One sculpture on display at the Botanic Gardens comes from the Denver Art Museum. It's called Snow Flurry May 14th. It's a mobile, like what you'd find over a baby's crib, but bigger and more elegant, Hart says. Calder made this in 1959. It hangs from the ceiling with metal rods and discs that move. They're all white, of course. It's snow. So when you think about snow, you think about movement. And that's really what Calder was after, this idea of rhythm and movement. A similar snow flurry sculpture sold five years ago for more than $10 million. Hart says the Denver Art Museum agreed to lend its Calder sculpture to the Botanic Gardens under specific conditions to protect the work. So we had to work together to figure out a space that was both acceptable in terms of humidity and then light. So it's the only Calder on display indoors. You'll find the rest in the gardens. Two of these sculptures have parts that move with the wind. The others are stationary. These are known as stabiles. Some look like figures. Others are abstract. You know, some of these Calder sculptures are very perplexing. That's Sandy Rower. He's president of the Calder Foundation in New York. He's also Calder's grandson. Rower takes me to the crab. It's a bright red sculpture with legs that arc out and down to the ground. It's very tempting to walk underneath them, which we try to do, only to have a security guard stop us. Okay, cool. If you cool. walk around the sculpture, I'd really appreciate it. And then he catches someone else about to walk through it. Anyway, the crab doesn't move, but Rower says it still has tremendous energy. Because if you see the legs, they're not just curving forms coming out from a body. Even the skinny one gets thicker and thinner and thicker and thinner. It has no mathematical or geometrical definition. And that makes it playful. 
Rohr says Calder was a serious man who often worked alone, but he wanted his art, like the crab, to be uplifting. He didn't like art that was too psychologically dark. He felt that, you know, we all experience that in life. We don't need more of that in art. Alexander Calder often reinvented himself, early on with wire sculptures, then his mobiles, and later his monumental works. Rohr says Calder was the first artist regularly commissioned to make modern sculptures for public spaces. Many architects of the 20th century chose Calder to be the artist they wanted to collaborate with. Rohr says these sculptures often evoke nature. And that, he says, makes Calder's art a good fit for the natural environment. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. To survive in prison, it helps to be resilient, creative, and a self-starter. Not unlike being a successful entrepreneur, says Brad Feld. Feld has been called the godfather of Boulder's startup scene. He mentors and funds entrepreneurs through Techstars and the Foundry Group. And he is extending that work to current and former inmates. And Brad, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. This started after you visited an entrepreneur training program in a high-security prison in California. It's called Defy Ventures. And uh, the fact is, a number of those inmates will be released, and some who have been have already started their own businesses. Uh, what are some of your favorite examples? Well, there are there are two that I love. One is uh, uh, a bar that you can eat right, a nutrition bar called Prison Bars. And it's just so cleverly merchandised and marketed. And then the other is an organization called Conbody that was started by uh, a few EITs. We call them entrepreneurs in training rather than cons or ex-cons. And it's a a workout program uh, and a gym aimed at doing sort of the Conbody experience, right, the prisoner training program. I see. The idea that lots of people get fit in prison and there's something to translate outside there in terms of exercise. Correct. Mm. Have you tasted those bars? I have. I have uh, several boxes in my office. I actually had one a couple of days ago. They're very good. So this is an idea that you'd like to bring to Colorado corrections. I want to say that more than a thousand people have graduated from the California program so far and graduates have started something like 165 businesses with a combined 350 employees. Uh, But take us into that California program. I understand that uh, you call the visit to this training program a top 10 peak life experience. What what struck you most about that day? It it was profound for me. Um, I've had a little bit of experience with uh, the prison system in the past. I've had uh, two people that I've known uh, went to prison for white-collar crimes, but I'd never had any experience uh, in an extended fashion. Uh, we spent uh, a group of seventy of us spent uh, twelve hours uh, behind bars um, with fifty EITs who were graduating from a six-month program that Defy puts on. So this was not just uh, a graduation for them, but it was also a pitch competition, Shark Tank style, throughout huh. the day. Um, and there were really three things that happened. Uh, over the 12 hours that we were uh, in prison uh, working with the EITs. Um, The first was this pitch competition. The second was a graduation where they got a bachelor's certificate from Baylor uh, for our entrepreneurship uh, class. And for many of them, it was the very first time they'd ever matriculated for anything. 
And then the third was this very powerful interactive dynamic that evolves over the course of the day where you have, you know, very clear rules in terms of how you can engage with each other. But the level of emotional connection and understanding working with uh, these all men in this case who have had a very, very challenging and difficult uh, past and experience but spending time with now 70, 75 entrepreneurs and VCs and investors, many of who come from a very privileged perspective like I do, mm. and just trying to start to understand the dynamic. And there's a very powerful punchline, which is throughout the day, uh, you have these experiences. And a lot of times you'll have you know one experience on something like this that's profound for you. For me, I probably had, you know, 10, 15 profound experiences, but all on different dimensions, things that caused me to think about myself, my relationship to others, my role in the world, um, how I interact with people that are less privileged, how I think about, for example, uh, institutionalized racism, which is one of the undercurrents of uh, the prison system uh, in lots of places, how I relate to spending 15 minutes talking to somebody who's in prison for 40 years for a triple murder, which I had never done, let alone done face-to-face where we're working on solving a problem together. Those kinds of profound experiences really change the way I think about things. I understand the idea of training those who will be released because the idea is presumably either to get them to start a company or to learn skills that can make them more attractive as employees to other companies. Uh, But these programs, which are not just in California, but a a few other states as well, also work with those who are in prison for life. So what is it that they're learning? Uh, Because they, of course, can't start companies behind bars. One of the things that we try to do is talk about, or that Defy tries to do, is talk about this notion of becoming CEO of your own life. And for many of the EITs, they've never really been involved in anything that in their in their life up to that point that gave them any sort of structure about what a a, a life of success might look like. Um, not just that, but sort of the reinforcement around your own uh, search for meaning in life. And so, for someone who's you know serving a life sentence those life skills are still just as useful uh, to that person as they are to somebody who's going to be released in 10 years. The other thing that it does is it really changes the tone of interaction um, between a number of the EITs, both from a collaborative perspective, because they're now working on things together, but also from a support perspective for each other. It's it's kind of amazing to watch uh, 50 uh, grown men who are, you know, in prison for 10 to lot 10 years to life, wearing caps and gowns for the first time, matriculating across a stage for the first time together because they finished an intense 6-month program together. And I think that that will impact those people and you know, the response that I got during the day from a number of people including several people who I talked to that were serving life sentences was the same kind of profound experience I had, they articulated the same thing. Mm. How it will change their day-to-day interactions, who knows? But it will somewhere in their 
overall arc change the way they think about a lot of things. And this idea, I want to say EITs again is entrepreneur in training. That's what you refer to the inmates who participate as. And, you know, there's, I think, often a thirst for cohesion in prison, and that sometimes results in prison gangs. And I suppose this is a different way of creating cohesion. And um, I, I want to underscore the fact that this isn't just about helping inmates start businesses. It's also helping with life skills, as you've said. Uh, here's one of the men named Joey, uh, who is convicted of murder. Uh, this is from a video about the program that's, uh, again, in California, some other states, and that you're hoping to bring to Colorado. The most valuable lessons I've learned from the training courses are how to bring up and explain my criminal history during job interviews. I like the character development courses because they allowed me to not only let go of a lot of the hang-ups, but forgive others for a lot of the wrongs I felt were done to me. So interesting there. He talks about forgiving what he sees as wrongs done to him, but also about how you broach your history, if you've been in prison, to a potential employer. That seems a critical skill. It's very powerful. One, one of the things that Kat Hoke, who's the CEO of Defy, leads with during the day is the notion that all of us are bringing empathy to the discussion, not judgment. And one of the powerful things as a leader and my own experience as both an entrepreneur and an investor is there are lots of challenges in life, lots of challenges in business, lots of challenges in anything you do. If you can approach it from a perspective of empathy for the other person rather than an immediate judgment based on the past, you can often very, very quickly go deeper in that relationship. And that skill, understanding for many of the, you know, the EITs who have had very, very challenging upbringings, um, who have built you know, their own uh, life and world model based on the stimuli that they had as children and, and what their parents uh, taught them, which in many cases, uh, for, for a lot of these folks, they're children of, of a parent who was in prison because that's a natural cycle that happens within these communities. Being able to start to approach things from this perspective of empathy uh, and then portray yourself in a way where you're comfortable owning your past but also owning your current and your future and where your current and your future can be different and better than your past mm. uh, is very powerful. So in just the last few seconds, uh, are you working with the State Department of Corrections then to bring this here? Yeah, we're starting to uh, scale up uh, things in Colorado. We don't have a formal program yet. All of our programs are through um, individual State Department of Corrections. So we have a program in New York and a program in Nebraska that just launched uh, yeah. last year. And in Colorado, what we've done is gotten a number of people who have now been volunteers on trips uh, my partner at Foundry Group, Jason Mendelson, is the chair of the Colorado program. And our hope is before the end of the year, working with the State Department of Corrections to get a program up and running here. Brad Feld, managing director at Boulder-based Foundry Group. It's a venture capital firm that focuses on startups. He also runs the accelerator Techstars. And as we discussed, he is working now to help prisoners become entrepreneurs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs> 